so Chris and I have been doing a class. We talk about it all the time. It's called DNA Relationships, right? Um, we, we've done it three or four times now together. You've done it more than me probably because he led, led a men's group. And, um, you know, this is my fourth time going through the videos. And I'm like, I get stuff every time I go through them. And I just decided these are things that we need to review every year. There's just things we have to talk about all the time because until you talk about it and get it from here to here, you're not, your life isn't changed by it, right? What do they say? The greatest distance is the 18 inches between your head and your heart, right? And so sometimes you have to talk about things over and over and over before it begins to be absorbed into a life-changing uh, paradigm for us. And so DNA relationships is kind of like that for me. And so I wanted to talk about that tonight. Um, and so Chris is doing the exact right thing, which is grab your grab your um, little handout, and you're going to see a list of core fears. Core fears are things that we all struggle with. Either, um, either we were born that way, and that's just our, our personality, or we've had wounds in our life which have taught us certain core fears, or, or it's just the enemy. But I'd like you to take time and just circle four or five or ten or whatever you want to circle, whatever kind of strikes you. I'll tell you right now what my core fears are. One of them is um, abandoned, fear of abandonment, um, fear of being unloved or invalidated, disrespected, oh, and um, disconnected. Disconnection in relationship is a really big deal to me. And that shouldn't be a surprise because I'm a very relational kind of person. And if you're going to make a generalization, you'd say that women have more core fears about relationship issues, and men have more core fears about ego issues. And ego not meaning a bad thing, but ego meaning about self-esteem or your personhood, right? Those are just generalities, but they're not necessarily true. Would you, would you agree with that, Chris? Do you care to share any of yours, or you don't have to if you don't want to? Um, all of the above, no. Um, rejected, inadequate, manipulated, feel like a fa failure, disrespected, humiliated, those. So we all, we all struggle these, with these things, and in the reality, our, um, in our relationships, we, we have what's called a fear dance or a core fear dance. So let's say um, somebody pushes my core fear of feeling um, disrespected or invalidated. It might be my response then to lash out and attack and push that other person's core fear buttons, right? And now you're doing this back round and round thing called the fear dance because you're, what you're trying to do in a dysfunction, really super dysfunctional way is control the other person and get them to stop hurting you because you feel hurt. You feel pain, you feel hurt. And so you're trying to get the other person to stop by you're, you're doing something to push them away, and it just goes round and round and round and round. The number one thing that we have to remember as Christians, this is super important, not the number one, but one of the most important things is, and this is your, should be one of your blanks, don't expect people to be the solution to your fear dance. People are never the solution because people really aren't the problem. 
We're the problem. People aren't the problem. I know, it's like there's like the Holy Spirit is in here. Doing all this kind of stuff. Right? The external problem is rarely ever the problem. It's a symptom. You know, um, he was, Gary Smalley, he's the one that teaches this. Gary and his son, Michael? Michael. They do this crazy thing, and some of you have done this class will, have, will recognize this, but they go, hey. Because the idea is you're pointing up to God and then pointing four fingers back to yourself, but you're never pointing to the person and saying, you are making me afraid. You are invalidating. You make me feel disrespected. That's what we want to get away from. And we say, hey, God, why am I feeling disrespected? What's going on inside of me that I need to look at that maybe has not been healed? And remember, one of our core values here at Supper Club is to take care of our side of the, of the fence, right? To say, hey, I need to get my own healing. Everyone needs to be healed. How do I heal myself before I even start to help somebody else? This is one of the ways you do it. When you feel that core fear being touched, our first response, if we're mature, would be to say to God, what's being touched? What are you, what's, what's going on right now, God? Not, hey, you're such and such. Not to go to that person and say, you're, you're making me feel this way. Our first response is say, hey, God, why am I feeling this way? What's being touched inside of me that I need to look at? You know, <laughs> he calls the fear dance is functionally dysfunctional. Usually the fear dance is the only dance that we've ever grown up with. Someone insults me, I insult you. Someone attacks me, I attack you. How many people do you know that if they get attacked, they come out punching? They, do you know that kind of person? Where if they feel attacked, now there's, there's several different ways that we can respond when we feel hurt. One of them is called escalation. Escalation would be that kind of thing where you feel hurt, so you come out, I'm going to pound them to the ground, either physically or verbally, but I am going to make them pay. That's escalation. That's, that's anger. Escalation is a form of control. So another way that we can respond is we can withdraw. We can say, man, you really hurt my feelings, so I'm not going to talk to you today. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to lick my wounds. I'm going to hold on to this, so later on I'm going to pound you back with this. I'm going to let you have it. Another way is pa being really passive-aggressive. How do we know what's passive-aggressive? Do you guys know? Anybody? Give me an example. What's passive-aggressiveness? Okay. It's a dig. Usually is it someone's, yeah, it, it's, it's a dig. It can be sarcastic. It can, passive aggressiveness can be um, the silent treatment, actually. Someone can be like, I'm really angry with you, but the assertive thing would be, say, Julianne, I have a problem with you. Can we please sit down and talk? That's assertiveness. Aggression would be, I can't believe you did that to me. I am super angry at you. You're going to pay, blah, blah, blah. Passive aggressiveness is, I'm not going to talk to you for two days. And you're going to have to figure out why I'm, at, why I'm mad at you. And I'm going to punish you. I'm still being aggressive, but in a passive way. That's called passive aggressiveness. It's still not healthy, right? 
but they're what we were raised with. A lot of times it's what we were raised with. It's what we know. We don't know how to do anything differently. And what we want to look at here as Christians, you guys, and I know this, you know, is kind of like 101, but we have to go over this over and over and over because if we're going to be world changers, we've got to present a different model and we have to practice a different model, okay? We can't be, you know, Chris and I were talking to, um, I don't know if it was the Corgans or something on Tuesday night, and we said divorce is the same, and you know this, Jay, has the same rate in the church as outside of the church. Why is that? Why, why wouldn't the church provide any tools that help people to stay more married than outside of the world, right? And so while this stuff may seem very lowbrow, if you will, we have got to get a hold of it if we're going to make a difference in this world. We were, um, Chris had a, uh, a client who works in the, um, in the juvenile system, and she was talking to him about all the juveniles that have, are in there for like attempted murder and stuff like that. All the, all the I mean, it's the boys, it's the boys section or the girls too? Yeah. And they were just talking about the way those children act, the words they use, the um, crimes they've committed, and they're not adults. They're children. And I'm telling you right now, that is the result of our society, you guys. That's the result of the breakdown of the family and fatherless children. And we either get this stuff figured out and we model it and we teach it, or we can just, we can just flush society down the toilet, not to be gruesome. But th that's why I, f I really believe that we have to get a hold of this, learn it, and we have to practice it. We have to practice it in our relationships. I'm passionate about this. Number two, part of maturing in the Lord is to take responsibility for our own stuff. You know, one thing that I love what he says is we're all powerful people. We've met people in our um, circles who are victims to circumstance or they're just victims in general. They don't have any power. They don't rise up. They're, not, they're completely passive. They don't believe that they can do anything to change their circumstances or make life any different. That is not what God has called us to be. He's called us to be CEOs. He's the ultimate CEO, but we're to be in charge of our life. He's given us authority over our lives. That's the whole point of the cross. The authority that was given to Satan has now been broken, and we've been given authority over our lives again, and we have to walk in it. And that's another thing the world needs to know. You are not a victim. You are a powerful person. You get to own your destiny. You get to partner with your destiny. You get to change. This is what I love. What if every person here identified something in their family background and said, I'm going after that, and we're not going to experience that anymore. That's going to be dead and gone in the name of Jesus from my line going forward. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Whatever it was, depression, alcoholism, anxiety, addictions, Anything, divorce, anything, we said, that is shut down in my family line in the name of Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? We have that kind of authority inside of us to do that. We have to walk in our authority. We're powerful people. But taking personal responsibility, being powerful, means we refuse to focus on what the other person has done, and that's really hard. When you're high justice like me, all you want to do is look at the injustice. All you want to do is say, oh my gosh, 
they need to, they've wronged me, they need to apologize, and then everything will be okay. The hardest thing for me to do, I'll tell you straight up, being high justice, is to let go of my need to focus on what they've done wrong. That's really hard for me. But if we're going to go to the next level and be mature, we've got to take our focus on how off of that. And we have to take it back onto our own responsibility, you guys. Here's the thing. People are going to wrong us. They're going to treat us badly. They're going to um, do wrong. And our responsibility is to say, okay, God, hello, how do you want, I'm a powerful person. I'm not a victim to their behavior. How do you want me to deal with this? There are a lot of things that God can say. Ignore it. I'll deal with it. Confront it. I'm calling you to confront. Um, I want you to have good boundaries. There are a lot of things that God's going to ask us to do, but our focus needs to be on what God has called us to do, not on what they've done wrong. Because our strategy in this world is, God, you've given me authority, but I'm going to look to you. You're my ultimate authority. You're, my ult you're, you're calling the shots here. Now, how do you want me to deal with the situation? And it's not always going to be the same. But our focus, we can't be mired down on how they've done us wrong, or we will never go to the next place. We will never go to the next level in the Lord, in the next level in our destiny, because we're always going to be stuck on how we were done wrong. And I'll tell you guys, when you've been done wrong really badly, that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. But if I truly believe, if we're going to go to the next place, we have got to stop focusing on this. Amen? Amen or oh me? That's, that's a JR. One of the other most important things that a Christian needs to, to do, again, we're talking about mature Christians, okay? There, you know, Bill Johnson says, and I really believe this, you can have a whole city full of Christians and nothing looks different. You guys, that's not who I want to be. I want to be a world changer. I want to bring heaven to earth. I want to show people what it means to live an abundant life and how to have great relationships. That means we're going to have to pursue a different way of living. One of those ways of living is we have to renounce judgment. Are you ready? And manipulation. I'm sorry, control and manipulation. It's the human condition to want to control each other. You've hurt me. I'm going to hit you back so hard you'll never do that again. You are not acting the way I want you to act, so I'm going to manipulate and control you. That's the human way of doing relationships. That is not God's way of doing relationships. Guess what God doesn't do? Control or manipulate. God does not control or manipulate. I'm so sorry. Now, am I saying God's not sovereign? Absolutely not. Am I saying God doesn't have ultimate control? Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is he doesn't come to us and say, you know, I'm going to get you to X, Y, or Z by controlling and manipulating your emotions, making you feel ashamed, condemning you. That is not God. And if you ever feel that, you can be really sure that's not the spirit of God in operation. And then you stand up and take authority over that spirit. Because you're like, if I'm feeling condemnation, the scripture says, there is therefore now no condemnation. And the reality is, if God doesn't condemn us, and God doesn't use control and manipulation, we are not allowed to use it either, ever, ever. And this is a hard one to get a hold of because it's our nature to control. 
one way or the other. We control with being passive aggressive. We control being just aggressive, escalating, whatever. We have got to let go. We're going to the next place as mature adults. We're no longer children. We're going to let go of control and manipulation. The only people we're in control of is ourselves. You know, um, what, one thing that Gary Smalley says, and this is, this is an interesting thought, we have to put into the right perspective the role of our emotions. Because I don't ever want to discount our emotions. I don't want you to say you can't have the feeling of being hurt or betrayed or abandoned or whatever that is. Because those are legitimate emotions and they inform us of something. Emotions are tools for our um, mental health, if you will. They're tools for us to know what's going on, but they don't rule the show. What rules the show is us, our spirit. And in our spirit, we get to decide what we believe and what kind of thoughts we're going to think. So what can happen is, you guys, and I, maybe you have experienced this or not, there's an there's a actual legitimate phenomenon, an actual legitimate um, neurological truth, if you will, that the more you think about something the same way, you lay down a neurological pathway about that particular issue. Let's just say the issue is um, I'm not lovable. Let's just say I'm not lovable. And the more you react about that and the more you think, or, or even how about, about um, a relationship, that person is X, Y, or Z. And we, we, we take that thought and we lay it down. And now whenever that person or that issue comes to mind, it immediately goes to that same thought. It's like a record. It's like a groove in a record player, right? That's why sometimes you'll see in um, uh, different addiction groups, they have the, um, you know, the bracelet, like the, the rubber band. So if you think something, like say, I want to get a, I'm stressed out, I want to get a drink. See, those two things are connected. I'm stressed out, the answer is a drink. They've laid down a neural pathway. You have to break that neural pathway. So they'll snap a rubber band to try to physically break that neural pathway. That is a legitimate behavioral modification thing that people do. That's what we have to do about our emotions. We can say, wow, that person really hurt me, or X, Y, or Z really hurt me. My thought can be, what a jerk they are. I can't believe they did that. They must not really love me, or they must be blah, 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 blah. And the more we think about it, the more we lay that down. And our emotion now, our hurt emotion, has allowed that thinking, that thinking has agreed with that emotion. Well, see, we're not run by our emotions. We get to say, wait, 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 wait. I have a core fear. It just got touched. I'm hurt because they really hurt my feelings. God, what do you say about this? Oh, the truth is that X, Y, or Z, now my thoughts are taking charge of my emotions. All right? Our emotions are not going to rule the show. Our thoughts are going to rule the show. And our thoughts are going to be centered on, on what God says about things. We know what God says about things because guess what? We got a whole book of what he thinks about things. We got a whole book of truths about what he thinks about things. And when we don't know something, rather than go to our human tendency to figure it out on our own, we need to say, wait a minute, God, what did you say about what's going on? Oh, oh, they're reacting out of a hurt. Oh, it's not about me. It's about something else. 
they just got laid off at work and they're really stressed out. And now I get to give them grace and mercy because I'm not going to react out of my emotions. You follow me? We get to be, we're the CEO of our life in one sense. You know, we can see how this works. You know, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, before he had a, an encounter with God, and boy, that'll change your thinking when you have an encounter with the Lord, right? His thinking was, these Christians are heretics. I'm angry. I can't believe what's going on. I'm full of righteous justice. His emotions were completely, you know, running the show, and he was persecuting all the Christians until one day on the Damascus Road, that man had a change of thinking. That man saw Jesus for himself, and it changed his thought process, and immediately his emotions followed. Your emotions follow your thoughts. It's just, what are you thinking on? What are you thinking about? That's why we always talk about what's the most powerful organ, so to speak? It's your brain. It's your attitude. It's your mindset. You can think on negative things, and guess what? You're going to have a negative life. You think about positive things. You think about the promises of God. You think about abundant life. You think about everything that he's taught us in the Bible. And all of a sudden you're like, what? what? Things are great. Life is about your attitude and it's about your mindset. We get to rule the show when it comes to that. But we have to make a choice. We have to identify our negative thought patterns. We have to identify. And, and that's when we look inward and say, what's going on? What's going on? This is one of my favorite. Number three, the most powerful people have fully surrendered to Christ. That's why I said I, I, I like using that analogy CEO, and I don't in a way, because the most powerful person is the most surrendered person to God. The most surrendered person to God. And that's the hardest thing I think it is to um, even explain to some people is, listen, if you want to get ahead in life, you're going to have to surrender it all. Because they, for some reason, that feels negative to them. It feels like they won't have any decision-making process, and they're going to be poor, and they're going to have to, you know, have, go out in the desert and eat locusts and honey and have long hair and stuff like that. You know, they really they identify surrender with weakness. The world has kind of made surrender as like you're giving up to something, you know, and you're going you're gonna to be a slave. The reality is, if you want to live your fullest life, your best life, your most most abundant life, you will fully surrender to Jesus Christ. You'll fully surrender. You will lay down on the floor and say, I'm all yours. That's the most powerful position you can have is completely surrendered. And it's hard to, it's hard to communicate that, but we're going to the next level because we're mature people, and we're going to fully surrender. Powerful people give to God all of their expectations that people, places, and things will bring you happiness and fulfillment. This was really hard for me. I learned this in um, Celebrate Recovery. And this is really hard for me because I'm at, at the core, I'm kind of an idealist, and I want an ideal situation. And so the idea that this world is not idea, ideal or I can't have those ideals was kind of a heartbreak for me, kind of a heartbreak. But, it, but the reality is it's not ideal. And we can't look to people, places, and things for our fulfillment. That, can come, that comes only from God and God alone. And I'm here to tell you, we do get to have an ideal habitat. It's just not right now. It's going to be in heaven. It's going to be in the renewed earth. It's going to be when eternity comes. And it's not that we um, 
don't ever get to see that. It's that we need to wait and have the proper expectations for where we are right now. Remember, we talked about unmet expectations. If you expect this world to fulfill, you'll be sadly, sadly hurt, mistaken. It's the world to come that's going to bring us incredible joy and fulfillment. Not that we can't have joy here, but we, it, cannot, it cannot be what heaven is going to be for us and what God is for us. The other thing that was interesting for me, is, and this is, a, this is a, a characteristic of a powerful person, realize that everything negative that happens to us can be reframed into something positive. This is a hard, hard one to get a hold of because when you've been really, really hurt, it's hard to go, oh, that was God's will. He's going to use it for good. You know, praise the Lord. That's hard. I'm here to tell you that's hard, but I am here to tell you it still doesn't, it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not true. Am I right? Life is hard, you guys. Life is hard. Sometimes life is suffering. But that doesn't mean that God can't reframe and use what has happened to us to help other people or for positive things. I was talking to Carla. I was going on a walk today, and I was telling her about this, and I said, um, and you guys, I've done tons of mediations. Now, I've done a lot of mediations. I do them on my own. I do them with lawyers like um, Jay. And Jay will testify to this. And you probably have had more high conflict, but mine was super high conflict, wasn't it? Like severe. Here's the reality. Because I had such severe high conflict, I can minister to almost anybody going through a divorce. There's almost nobody who's had a worse situation. I mean, some, there probably is some, but not very many in terms of high conflict. So whenever I meet with somebody and I talk to them, I can say to them, oh, you're here at the mediation table one time. I was there six times. We didn't make any headway till the sixth time. So I know what you're going through. And I, I can actually reframe what I went through to help other people. Does that mean that God wanted it to happen? I'm not going to say that God wanted it to happen. What I am saying is God's big enough to take what happened to me and use it for something good. It's not easy. I'm not here to tell you it's easy. I'm just telling you it can be done. Powerful people recognize that. Powerful people accept the fact that God can use our failures, disappointments, for something better. That's what powerful people can do. The scripture, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Maturity is what we're going for. We want to become mature. And then fourthly, powerful people pursue perfect love. I had to get all those P's in there. Powerful people pursue perfect love. We're going to talk, I'm going to read a uh, passage from 1 John 4. And it's written by the disciple John. Any of you that guys know John, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. He's known as the uh, disciple that he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. His theme throughout everything except Revelation, because that's more of a prophetic book, is all about the love of God. He is, he is hot and heavy on we are going to get a hold of what does the love of God look like and how does it operate in our lives. That's his number one theme. Here's our main verse for tonight. By living in God, love has brought us to its full expression in us so that we may fearlessly face the day of judgment 
because all that Jesus now is, so are we in this world. Love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment. But love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Our love for others is our grateful response to the love God first demonstrated to us. So here's the thing, you guys. Powerful people focus on God's way of loving. Not the world's way of loving, but God's way of loving. I'm sorry, that was 1 John 4, 17 through 19 in the Passion. Perfect love in this verse means complete or mature. Do you remember that scripture, Jesus was perfected in his suffering? We're like, how can Jesus be perfected? But it's because in this particular instance, this word perfect means to complete, to bring to completion. It doesn't mean something was faulty and then it was perfected. It means there was a process to where the love was brought to a finished act or completion. So when they talk about Christ was made perfect in suffering, it doesn't mean that um, he was imperfect in some way. It means he was brought to completion through suffering. Something about what he needed to learn and do was brought to completion through the suffering he went through, which is a lesson for us, you guys. And we're mature people, so we're going to accept this, that sometimes suffering is what brings us to completion in our faith, brings us to a place we might not could have gotten to without that element of suffering. I think, thank you. And so when we experience suffering, going back to when we experience suffering, say, God, how are you using this to complete me, to take my faith to completion? And as mature people, we can accept that suffering is part of our life. And even if we're going to be like Christ, we are going to say we, Christ suffered, therefore we're going to suffer. Suffering is part of the Christian life. I wouldn't say that to many people, but I can say it to the people that are here right now. It's something we need to learn to handle because we're going for maturity, right? So perfect love looks like this, you guys. I'm not going to go through this whole, I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. Perfect love looks like this. When we read this scripture, 1 John 4, and he talks about what it looks like to have God's love in us. It's, here's some things. Perfect love looks like this. God's love is continually in us and pours from us to others. We experience intimacy with God. Loving each other this way is a way of life. It's not a one-time thing. God has a permanent home inside of us. His love has full expression in us. Here's the thing, you guys. Love never brings fear. This scripture that I read to you a lot of times is, um, and rightfully so, interpreted about the fear of judgment, of of God judging us for heaven and hell. But what I'm using this for is the idea that the love that we have that is God's love inside of us for another should never engender any kind of fear. Because fear has to do with judgment, rejection, abandonment. Mature love that is God's love and expression through us should never make a person feel controlled, judged, or rejected. Because that's not God's love. Because perfect love casts out fear. So if we are loving imperfectly, we may be causing someone to feel rejected, abandoned, judged. That is not God's love. We're going for something completely different. We're going for a perfect love that draws people to us and draws people to God where they feel safe, they feel accepted, they feel known.
So to pursue, pursue perfect love is to, this is a big one, we have to be humble about our own weaknesses. Loving others is a grateful response to God's love for us in our weakness. So part of perfect love is saying, you know what? God loved me in my weakness. I'm going to love you in your weakness because we're all weak. We're all broken, and I'm not going to judge you because perfect love casts out fear of judgment. We have to be humble if we're going to walk in a perfected kind of love. We have to make this love a way of life. You know, it's easy to come and hear a message and walk away and be all, like, spooled up and think I'm going to love people really well. And then, you know, something happens. I was, um, I'll give you a little story. So my daughter was supposed to come in Wednesday night at 1130. I was going to pick her up from the airport. We were going to take her to the hospital at, um, yeah, she was supposed to get there at 530. And then her surgery was supposed to be at 730. Well, you know, as life would have it, the flight she was on was delayed. So she missed that flight altogether. So she had to go down to um, Sacramento, fly out Thursday morning. And so you know, this is kind of a show now, what I like to call a you-know-what show, and I'm driving to pick her up from the airport. Um, she came in at 9.45, and she's like, Mom, <laughs> she's so funny. The scheduler, she had called the doctor, and the doctor said, call my scheduler, what's his name, Tristan, or something like that, and he will get you, will get you, will get you surgery today, because we are afraid we couldn't even get surgery that day, right? So she calls me, she goes, Mom, did you call him? I'm like, I left him a voicemail, he didn't call me back, and this is Emma. She's like, well, Mom, I think what we should do is call the hospital, talk to the operator, get them to um, page the operating room and have Dr. Newman call me back. I'm like, the hospital's not going to do that. What are you talking about? I said, we need, to call the, we need to call the doctor's office. So I call the doctor's office. This is my favorite. I call the doctor's office. I'm like, yeah, this is Paula Waterman. I'm Emma Cladfelder's mother. She had, scheduled, she had surgery scheduled for today, um, but she, you know, Mr. Flight, we're just getting in right now. We were supposed to get a hold of Tristan, the scheduler. Who is this again? I'm like, this is Paula Waterman. And wh- wh- who's, wh- what's the name of the patient? I went, it's Emma Gladfelder. And she's like, now who told you that you could have surgery today? I'm like, Dr. Newman told me. And she's like, let me see if I can get some more information for you. And then she comes back. She goes, what's your name again? And I went, Paula Waterman. She goes, what's the name of the scheduler? And, you know, I'm about ready to lose it, you guys. It's real hard to keep my religion at this time. I'm really about to lose it. Then I, then I said, well, her scheduler is Tristan. And she goes, he's not in today. And I'm just like, how the crap am I going to get anything scheduled? So finally she gets me over to a scheduler, and the scheduler's like, we're all waiting for you in the operating room right now. And I'm like, we'll be there as soon as we can be there. And she's like, sure, no problem. And I'm like, okay. And I hung up the phone, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, how can I keep perfect love going on when I'm super frustrated with these people when the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing, right? So it's easy when we feel good to be non-judgmental and not controlling and good Christian people, it's real hard when we're a little bit ticked off, right? But it's important that we practice in those times more than any other time to, to really model perfect love. That, those are the most important times, not the easy times. Because love has nothing to do with judgment, rejection, or torment, 
We refuse to participate in them or inflict them on anyone else. And lastly, we pursue an intimate daily relationship with God so as to make our love perfect, which means complete or mature. And so I'm just going to pray over you guys. And we will give thanks to King Super as usual for our fried chicken. And for Jane for picking it up for us. Jane, you're leaving next week. You're going to a conference. Oh, that's right. Going to see your brother and sister-in-law. Okay. And then next weekend is Brian Fenimore, you guys. And Jay's going to be doing our um, communion. Our communion. Isn't that awesome? So um, bow your heads with me. Hold my hand, sweetie, because you're my man. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. I just thank you for um, the relationships you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that you created us relational people just like yourself, God, that you want us to have abundant, mature relationships where we love each other really well, God, and we model it for the world around us, Father. I just thank you, Lord, that you love this world. You're, You're breaking through into this world, that you're changing this world. You're not leaving us in this condition, that we get to be co creators and co redeemers with you, Lord. Bring us to the place where we begin to just shine your light to all those around us, Lord. They see inside of us a joy and a love and a maturity that they so long for, Lord. Let us reflect you in all that we do, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.